Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, and saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, even that, the, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came into the other side, the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting onto a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes to themselves said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to come before you preaching the word. Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Blessed Lord, who caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, would you grant us so to hear them? And as they were read, would you help us to learn and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jesus preached a long sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, covering from Matthew 5 through chapter 7. And the majority of chapter 8 was kind of like his, more than a sermon illustration, but showing the authority that he had in preaching the way he preached. He healed a leper who came and asked. He healed a centurion's servant, and he was so impressed with his faith because he, this centurion, this Gentile, understood authority. 
and understood that Jesus had authority. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was having a fever. And in seeing these three display of miraculous power, as Pastor Eugene preached last Sunday, uh, we see a response. We see a response that Jesus showed in terms of the costing, showing the cost of discipleship. And for though there were people who were excited, they were intrigued and fascinated by what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, when Jesus explained the bottom line that he demanded immediacy, he demanded total submission, they went away and they didn't follow. Today, uh, Sammy read three set of, sets of uh, miracles. And here we see Jesus displaying his authority. His authority over nature, over demons, and ultimately over sin. And all of these show us Jesus' absolute authority as the Son of God. And we're going to look at each one. Jesus' authority over nature, Jesus' authority over demons, and Jesus' authority over sin. In verse 23, um, we hear, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Um, This is stark contrast to what happened to those who didn't follow. Remember, in counting the cost, the one who uh, was overly zealous and wanted to follow and one who kind of overly promised but didn't have the commitment. Here, after all that, first response, we have these disciples who follow Jesus to the boat. And remember, Jesus was exhausted. He said in verse 18, uh, when he saw the great multitude, he gave commands to depart to the other side. Remember, he gave a long sermon. He did miracles after miracles, healing, and he was spent. And, you know, disciples are following him to the other side. In verse 24, Matthew says this quite a bit, and behold, it's like something important is happening here. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. A bunch of men... The disciples were experienced fishermen, but they were overwhelmed. Now, storms came quite regularly, unexpectedly. You know, this is, uh, um, there was a sudden, you know, cool air coming in, mixing with warm air, and violent storms broke regularly. So a bunch of these men who were fishermen, they were accustomed to this kind of storm, but something was different about this one. They were scared. Some of these experienced fishermen who had weathered storm after storm, fishing in the same sea, they were afraid for their lives. This storm was unusual. There was something severe that was overwhelming their soul. I don't know how many of us had any experience that's remotely close. The only thing that I can think of for myself, and maybe you experienced something like this too, when maybe you had families come from abroad and you took them to Niagara Falls and you went on that uh, Maid of the Mist, you put this blue poncho, you just, you, the only thing is, you know, you can see your eyes or your face and you get on that boat and it's like, I don't remember, like 30 minutes and it gets like 15 minutes to go in and like millions of, millions of, you know, gallons of water is just dumping, you see the mist, and you're like, oh my goodness, am I going to die? But you know that this boat goes again and again, and you know it's pretty safe. 
But imagine these disciples. Sure, they have weathered storms before, but it's night. It's dark. They can't see anything, and they're getting bombarded with water. They're afraid. They're deathly afraid. They can't see. They, they don't know the severity of the storm. They don't know where they are, and they cry out. In the midst of such storm, there was Jesus. He was fast asleep. In the Old Testament, sleep was something that was often referred to as pointing a deep trust in the Lord. Jesus was able to sleep because he knew who he was, and he knew the Father, and he also was spent. Remember, he was explaining to one of those who was interested in following Son of man has no place to rest his head, maybe except in a you know, boat that is being swamped with in a storm, and he's possibly, you know, but he was spent. Verse 25, the disciples, they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. The storm's getting worse. And one, one way of considering, if you have a bunch of fishermen who's, weather storms before going to an ex-carpenter and asking for help, in one way, that's a bad sign. It's like, what could this ex-carpenter do about storm and ships? I mean, Nazareth is not a coastal town. He hasn't weathered this before. But if they really knew who Jesus was, they would ask. The question is, what are they asking? What do they believe? Why are they going to Jesus to ask him to save them? And in verse 26, Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I mean, to be honest, I was a little afraid when I was in that, you know, little boat going around Niagara Falls. But, you know, these guys, they're probably thinking, Oh, we're about to drown. Can't you see all the water up our knees, maybe? And you're still sleeping? There is this dichotomy and fear and faith. They are afraid because they lack faith. And remember, throughout the previous healing Jesus talked about, and he's amazed by faith that people had. And here they were, these disciples who, with Jesus, they're afraid because they didn't have faith or just little faith. Did they know who Jesus was? They're focused on what they were seeing, experiencing, and they lost sight. But they still quite don't get who Jesus fully is. There is some basic trust. After all, they did go to ask Jesus for help. But it was really a response out of terror than deep faith and conviction, knowing that he can save them. Because he is whom? The Son of God? Do they know that? He had performed miracles. In chapter 4, Scripture reminds us that he did all kinds of miracles. And in verse 16 of the chapter, Jesus was healing people um, who were demon-possessed, who was casting out spirits, he was healing the sick. So much they've witnessed. Like, don't you remember what I did? It's like, you have little faith. In response, he, he gets up. And he said, the, the word says, 
rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm. Um, I haven't. I'm glad I haven't. But I've seen storms from a distance from the shore. You know, when hurricanes come, we've seen hurricanes come to New Jersey. Um, when Jesus rebukes the storm, traditionally when storms subside, it's the winds dies down, and eventually the waves settle. It takes time, right? There is momentum. So it takes time for the waves to eventually subside once the wind stops. But here, there's something miraculous that happens. There's something supernatural that happens when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and they both simultaneously stop. Wind stops. Immediately, the waves are stilled. Here's someone who is not like anyone else they've seen. He is sovereign over nature. And the men, they're marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? First time we see the word amazed, Jesus is amazed by the faith of the centurion, the Gentile, who gets authority. And now, it's these disciples in the boat who are amazed. Usually the crowd gets amazed, but here, the disciples are amazed by what they see. They get a glimpse of the sovereign authority of Jesus as he speaks commands and winds and waves stop. He is the very Son of God. He is the creator of all things, and he has authority of all things, including the wind and the waves. He demands our worship. He's the one who's calling us to follow him. Realizing that you are standing in the midst of this Emmanuel, God with us. God never promises or never promised that we will not experience storms in life. But he did say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Always be with you to the end of the age. That's the promise he gave. Question is, do we know, do you know who this Jesus is? The passage continues in verse 28. And finally, the ship lands and gets to the other side. Verse 28 says, when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes. Now, he's crossed the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty small sea, maybe 15 by 8 miles. Um, he gets to this area that's primarily populated by Gentiles, as there are pigs in the area. And in verse 28, we see that two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb. Now, tombs uh, were natural homes for demon-possessed, lepers, or anyone who's dispossessed. Um, they didn't have a place to reside. And uh, it was a, they lived in a constant state of uncleanness. Um, if you're a Jew, one of the defilements that you want to stay away from is from the dead body. But this was the only place that they could stay. 
among the tombs, always defiled, always unclean, never be able to be part of any community, any relationship with God as a community. And it's these two. C.S. Lewis uh, shares some wise words about demons and spirits. He says, they're two equal and opposite errors into which our race, human race, can fall in our thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think that's interesting and important, perhaps, to keep in mind. And these demon-possessed men, in verse 28, continually says, they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. They're kind of possessive of that territory, perhaps like animals are territorial, and they're so violent that, I mean, I don't know why any right-minded person would try to get nearby that kind of place. Um, and again, in verse 29, as Mark and Matthew often does, behold, and behold, look, guess what? These demon-possessed men, what did they do? They cried out, what have you do with us, O Son of God? The demons see Jesus for who he is. They have a very clear Christology. They know who Christ is. And now they know that their time is over. And because they know who Jesus is, they acknowledge, they acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. So they acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. However, they reject him as their leader. They know who he is. They know the authority he has. They know what he's going to do eventually when the time of judgment comes. But despite knowing, they still do not repent. They will not follow Jesus. In the Bible, only humans are stupid enough not to know that Jesus is the Christ. Demons know. They know a lot. They say they acknowledge a lot, but they don't follow Christ. It is not enough to say and utter with words and be able to articulate who Jesus is. We need to acknowledge him in our heart, allow him to have authority in our lives. A seasoned um, Christian passed away a long time ago by the name of Matthew Henry said, it is not knowledge but love that distinguishes saints from devils. He is the firstborn of hell that knows Christ yet rejects him and will not be subject to him and to his law. The demon-possessed man, well, the demons utter these words in verse 29. What have you, have, have you come here to torment us before the time? We know that, as Revelation teaches us, that there will come a time when the final judgment will come. Satan and his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire. Devils are well aware of this inevitable destiny. But they know that it's not yet now. Their hour of destruction is not right now, and they want to be left alone. And Jesus also knew that this wasn't the time. It was time for him to teach and preach the gospel. And though um, 
the devils knew of the redemptive plan and ultimate judgment that is to come. Um, again, there was no repentance, right? They recognized Jesus for who he is, what he's able to do. Um, but not now. Now, as they look around in verse 30, it says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And again, reminding that this is a Gentile territory, um, the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Um, they still need to submit their request to God, and Jesus still has to okay it. And Jesus responds with a simple word Go. It's the first time he speaks, and the only time he speaks in the story. Usually, if you are doing exorcism in um, biblical time, exorcists would have to, you know, say a lot of things, including the names of the demons, the territory of operation, and there'll be various incantations that they would have to utter. But here, Jesus needs no preface, nothing. Go, aka be gone. One word, and instantaneously, totally. Verse 32 um, shows us that they came out, went into the pigs, and again, behold, look. Look at what? The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Unfortunate loss of pork belly. I'm just kidding. Um, but demons, whether if they're possessing people, they are going to torture and kill the person. If they possess animals, same destruction, same end. And, and the Lord, Lord knew um, all this. And knowing that it wasn't time, he allowed them to go. But when you look at this story, we are reminded that, you know what? Ultimate judgment will come. Whether you've been going through the Gospel of Matthew in your small group, if you've been paying attention to Pastor Eugene preaching through the book of Matthew in the past several months, Jesus talks a lot about judgment, the ultimate judgment, and hell. There will come a time when we will be judged. Question is, will, how will we stand? Would it be robed in Christ's righteousness or not? Imagine you are on that mountainside and you saw 2,000 pigs just doing their pig things. They don't usually move, I'm told, in you know, groups. Um, they, you know, they're not like sheep. They don't usually go together. Uh, but imagine you see like thousands of pigs just feeding, and then all of a sudden you see 2,000 of them just like in mass jumping off a cliff. It's like something, something just happened. That is not normal. That is supernatural. 
question is, what does that point to? You see, Jesus just told the demons to go. And just then, 2,000 pigs drowned themselves. It's a living demonstration of the deliverance of the two men. Kind of also previewing the coming destruction. But it's a living proof that demons actually came out of these two men. Now imagine you are taking care of this sort of herds and you see this happening. The herdsmen, they fled. They, in verse 33 it says, going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It's interesting that they told everything, but the focus is on what happened to the demon-possessed men. I mean, these guys were in charge of the pigs, but the emphasis, the focus is what they witnessed in regards to the demon-possessed men. Not their pigs, but these demon-possessed men. Pigs weren't the issue, actually. The men who were delivered from the demons, they were the issue pigs was simply a proof of what had happened to them. It's an exciting time. This amazing miracle happens. And again, Matthew tells us, and behold, look, something is happening. And behold, what? All the city came out to meet Jesus. It's like they heard what happened. They're coming out. A great revival is going to break out. No. They're just one step behind the demons. Demons want Jesus to leave them alone. What do these people of this region want Jesus to do? They didn't, you know, they saw these men who were now freed from demon possession. And instead of bringing other people who are sick, asking for healing, instead of wanting to hear and learn from this guy who had this authority that they'd never seen before, what do they do? Instead of all that, they say, please. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They wanted him to leave them. Now, in Mark 15, um, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, explains a little bit about like, what's going on, the motivation from the townspeople. Um, they say peop- they were afraid. It was fear. I thought, and many people often, and I think it's not just Totally this, but many people say, oh, it's a financial thing. Yes, 2,000 pigs, that's someone's entire estate probably. They probably were not enthused at, you know, all this potential delicious pork belly, although if you're a Jew, you can't eat it anyway, but, you know, was basically destroyed. The harder matter is they were afraid of this holy, righteous man who had the power and authority to cast out demons. They couldn't handle it. They didn't want it. Please go away. Holiness. Holiness evokes that kind of just either disdain because you know, you know, we know how sinful we are, or it humbles us and forces us on our knees. It's one or the other. So instead of having a great revival instead of learning 
posturing, they ask him to leave. J.A. Packer, um, in one of his books, talks about the secret of a great Bible study. He says, and I think it's true, a lot of us, we talk about how does it apply to me? And we naturally, as, as people, we want to get there. But he says this is the first question and perhaps the most important question that we should be asking when we are studying the word. What does this passage teach me about my God? What does the word of God teach me about God himself? That's what we should be after, getting that part right. It's reminding us, Jesus is reminding us again and again as we look through the Gospel of Matthew that it's his power, his glory, his authority that he wants us to get. Yes, he wants us to understand what discipleship looks like. But why? Because who he is. Because he is the Son of God. This great physician not only heals the sick, not only commands the wind and waves and they still, not only is he able to cast out demons with a simple one word, go, doesn't have to say anything else and they go because they know who Jesus is. But now we get to perhaps the heart his authority over sin. In chapter 9, they wanted him to go. So in verse 1, what does Jesus do with his disciples? And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now the whole break, remember he was exhausted. He went over to the, um, the Gentile territory. He comes back to Capernaum, his hometown. Now uh, Nazareth, uh, was his original, but in terms of, you know, this is now where he did a majority of his ministry. But remember, he's responding to their request, their, their rejection. So if we had these potential disciples who were intrigued but didn't follow, now we had these Gentiles in seeing Jesus' authority over demons. They just flatly just reject Please, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Please go away. We want to be left alone. Whether a big part of that was financial implication, we just want life as it is. I think there's a big part in that because 2,000 pigs is a lot to lose. However, it is more about, really, because if you think about the town's response had nothing to do with the owners. Townspeople, they didn't own the swine. But in hearing the story, they were afraid, remember. They wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. And Jesus comes to his own town, and uh, not Nazareth, uh, his kind of a hub of operation, and he gets them to himself in this house. It's a familiar passage. Other gospel shows it also, but Matthew doesn't give a whole lot of details. But here, Jesus is in a house. If you look at other gospel, we know that house is packed, these four friends 
want to bring their paralyzed friend into Jesus' presence to get healed, and, but there's no space. And in verse 2, again, and behold, pay attention, something important is happening, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. He comes home, his hometown, he's in a house. These people bring a, paraly- a paralyzed man to Jesus' presence. And in verse 2, what does it say? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. They didn't give up when they came to the house and there was no room. It's like, oh well. No. They climbed to the roof. They made a hole. They lowered their friend. They didn't say a single thing. Remember, if you, if you think about people who come to Jesus for healing, they say, Lord, Lord, please heal my son. Lord, Lord, heal my daughter. Heal my servant. There's a clear request, maybe with an exception of uh, Peter's mother-in-law who had the fever. No request, still healed. But here, it's a quiet faith. No words are uttered. The paralyzed man is lowered. Jesus sees their faith, their sure faith, their quiet faith, and in seeing, recognizing, he says he comforts this paralyzed man. And can you like, imagine the anticipation of the people, especially the crowd, but especially the paralyzed man? He doesn't say anything. But what does Jesus say? He comforts and take heart, my son, and he says this, your Sins are forgiven. He doesn't heal him, but he forgives his sin. Jesus sees this man's primary need. Sin is our primary fundamental problem. If you were to compare Buddhism to Christianity, Buddhism asserts that fundamental problem with humanity is desire. Christianity says our fundamental problem is sin. Buddhism says, well, if the problem is desire, then the goal is to remove the desire. And you go through these steps. Christianity, Jesus says, The goal is forgiveness, restoration with our creator, and that happens through the Son of God who came, who lived a perfect life, died in our place, overcoming sin and death. He forgives sins. For some of us, um, we get lost and wrapped up in healings or stories of healings. But how many people who might be physically healed don't have their spiritual soul restored from their sin? Sin is the foundational problem that Jesus sees and deals with 
Like a long time ago, when missionaries went to Alaska, they tried to translate the Bible into the native tongue. They had a problem or challenge coming with a translation of the word forgiveness. Uh, there was no word for forgiveness. So they were you know, just stuck. And, and, but they eventually found that there was an interesting one-word phrase. I'm going to botch this word. It's, it's quite long. Is sumat jiju jun nainermik. There you go. You could try to Google that on your own. Um, it, it means not being able to think about it anymore. That one word phrase, not being able to think about it anymore. That God is not able to think about it anymore because he has removed it, has forgiven sins. It is the greatest gift to the greatest need. If we talk about the gospel, but the gospel doesn't have sin and forgiveness, then we have prostituted God's message. Bible tells us that we are sinners. We sin because we're sinful. But God so loved that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. We have a heavenly father who so loved. On this Father's Day, we remember the heavenly father who so loved us that he sent his only begotten son so that we may not perish. Like these demons will eventually, as we see a glimpse of that in this temporal aspect with the swine. Just to say God loves you, it's at best incomplete. For those of us who came and watched the movie, The American Gospel, there was a guy who went around doing fake miracles, and he would also say, God loves you. God, God does love you. But the most clearest way that God demonstrates his love is through dealing with our sin. Christian gospel has to attest to that and has to show that as the core. Anything else is a false gospel. And as Jesus is saying this, forgiving sin, in verse 3, and again, behold what's happening. Some of the scribes, religious leaders, the profession is reading the word, interpreting it. They said to themselves, just thinking to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now they were there in that house not because they were earnest, because they really wanted to learn. They were there to kind of catch him um, when he, if he were to make a mistake or find things to criticize and they're thinking to themselves, hey, only God is able to forgive. Duh. But Jesus, he's God, knowing their thoughts, because he's God, said out loud, 
so that these people can hear. Why do you think evil in your hearts? They're thinking, oh, this irreverent Jesus, this offensive man who claims to know God but is doing things that only God can do. Jesus said, you know what? I know what you're thinking. Stop it. Stop. Stop thinking evil thoughts. It's not really what you see. Miracles are not going to change people's hearts because whether you're disciples or these scribes, when the heart is hardened, demonstration is not going to change their heart. Jesus continues by saying, for which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? To say your sins are forgiven, man, only God can forgive sins. To say rise and walk, who, who can do such a thing? Only God can do. Forgiveness is only something that God can do. However, in terms of speaking, Jesus says, which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? If you say your sins are forgiven, how do you know whether the person's sins are actually forgiven? After all, unfortunately, throughout human history, people have uttered those words rather flippantly. Now, I can, I can't, but if someone were to come in a wheelchair, I can say with my words, get up and walk, but they won't, probably. I can say, and, and that's very clear, because physically, they can't literally get up. It is easier to say, at least with words, that your sins are forgiven. However, Jesus, just as he did before, remember when Jesus cast out the demons? Go. And what happened right away? They left, and the thing that happened was 2,000 pigs drowned themselves. That was a demonstration of what actually happened, that the demon-possessed men were released from demons. It was proof of what actually happened. When Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, and asks what's easier, clearly in terms of speech, saying you're forgiven is easier. However, to show that Son of Man has power to do so, he demonstrates that by telling this man, what does he say? Get up. tells him to get up, and in so doing, he gives a visible demonstration of his authority, that he has the authority to forgive sins. Rise, pick up your bed, and go. Totally comprehensive. He tells him to take the bed that he came with, well, before he first has to get up and then go home. And the man rose up and went home. So now that disproves this whole notion of blasphemy because in seeing this miracle, it proves that Jesus actually has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to command nature. Immediately, 
Because he has authority, wind and waves, they respond. That's a demonstration of his authority. Jesus has authority over demons. He says, go, and they go. And the proof is in seeing 2,000 swine jumping off. Jesus has power to forgive sins. How do we know? He commands a paralyzed man to get up. Pick up the mat that he's been living for past who, how many years, who knows, and go home, and he does. And you know what happens? He goes home, and it co- corroborates Jesus' identity and his authority as the Son of God. The verse, the chapter ends, excuse me, the section ends in verse 8. Now, when the crowds saw it, how did they respond? They were afraid. They glorify God, who had given such authority to men. Their response is far superior than the response of the first set of potential um, disciples who didn't follow Far better than those who reject and ask Jesus to go away. Far better than the scribes who are like trying to scheme things. Like, how dare you? They are afraid. They glorify God, but still they don't really fully understand. They, they see Jesus as someone of a man still. But still better. They glorify God who had given such authority to men. They don't fully get the claim that Jesus is making, that he is the very son of God. He's not a, just a great prophet, a great teacher, a great philosopher. Great teacher and philosophers, they don't go around saying, your sins are forgiven. They don't. When you study human history, when you study religion, people, these teachers don't go around forgiving sins. Only a sinless son of God can go knowing that he's going to pay the cost for this to happen, for this to actually be realized for humanity. He's the only one who can say your sins are forgiven because he is God. And this is what Matthew is getting, driving at. Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just a rabbi. As Judas Iscariot keeps calling Jesus, rabbi, rabbi. No, he is the Son of God. He is God himself. And it's this Son of God who calls you, calls me. Are you going to follow me now? Are you going to count the cost now? You've seen the miraculous display, me healing, my authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over sin. Will you now follow? As we celebrate Father's Day, my hope and prayer, as Pastor Eugene reminded us in the very beginning, is that we understand the Heavenly Father's heart, that we have a Heavenly Father who so loved this world that He gave His only begotten Son to take care of that sin problem, the foundational problem with mankind. Eventually we'll see Jesus' authority over death, And as Pastor Eugene will preach next week, we'll see a different kind of response 
as we see three miracles and this mediocre, not so great response. Now with these three miracles, how are we really to respond? Join me as we pray.